We're in a world of people always telling you, you can do anything you want, right? I mean, that's the first thing people say to you. You can do anything if you put your mind to it. You can accomplish anything you want. But I think secretly a lot of people think, I'll just tell you that, but you really can't. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Adventure Deficit Show, where we're always on the lookout for new stories and the life lessons they might hold. Join me, your host, Drew DeVries, as we embark on today's journey to combat the deficit. Today we're with Matt Schmucker, founder of Team Apex Multisport. Team Apex is a joined effort on behalf of a handful of guys in our community that put together a lot of outdoor events, a lot of sponsored races, a lot of benefit type activities for riders, paddlers, bikers, triathletes folks who are active, uh, to do things not only to uh, enhance the camaraderie of the sport, but to also benefit those for potentially a better cause. Um, Matt's got uh, an interesting background that he's going to share with us, and then he's also going to tell us an adventure story about uh, a certain gravel grinder that that he participated in a few years back in Kansas. Matt, how you doing, man? I'm good, Drew. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Matt, get us caught up a little bit about uh, your background. Fill us in on on uh, the young Matt Schmucker. Well, I'm a native Michigander. Uh, I've lived here my whole life. I grew up in a small town south of the city called Byron Center, uh, which at the time was just a cow town, basically. Now it's a booming metropolis uh, with folks moving there every day. But um, I was the youngest of five. I have four older sisters. Oh, wow. So it gives me a unique perspective on life, I think. Yeah. And had a lot of estrogen in the house. <laughs> a lot. Yes, very much so. I was the last try for a boy or a mistake. Um, I like to think I was the last try for a boy. That's what my parents <laughs> tell me. A victory lap. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Uh, and so I grew up in Byron Center. I went to school um, in Wyoming at a school called St. John Vianney. It was a Catholic um, grade school. And okay. then I went to high school at Catholic Central, which is downtown. Nice. Um, pre resurgence of downtown. So there was definitely some interesting folks on the streets of uh, wealthy division where the school was located when I was there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I had a great experience at both schools. Really liked it. Uh, I went to college kind of all over the place. I went to community for a couple of years. I did a semester at Aquinas and then I finished up at Central Michigan. Okay, cool. What'd you uh, specialize in? My degree is in marketing and logistics management at a double major. I did an internship in logistics and quickly realized that was way too boring for me. Yeah. Um, so I didn't go down that road. Um, but I had a good experience up at Central. I had a lot of fun, made a lot of good friends. I liked it there a lot. Uh, and then I had an interesting job. My first job out of college was uh, selling shampoo to salons. No kidding. So I continued the estrogen trail a little bit. <laughs> um, but I loved it. It was great. I thought salon owners and stylists were really fun people to work with. Uh, the industry had a ton of energy. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, but to continue my kind of unique experiences, I had a passion for the outdoors and I really liked landscaping and I wanted to work in that industry. And I had done that a little bit in high school and college. And so I ended up taking a job with a landscaping company, uh, running their landscape design and 
uh, installation division. Okay. And so I did some design. I uh, managed the crews and uh, did that and did it for a few years and then started my own business and did that for a little while and really liked it. Yeah. And um, just decided I wanted to focus a little bit more on marketing. I always liked that component of the of owning a business, developing a brand, developing marketing campaigns, social media campaigns, et cetera. And so recently I got rid of the business, sold the business, and then um, started to work for another company uh, doing marketing. Interesting. So, yeah, it's a real mixed, real mixed bag of experiences. Yeah. Okay. So um, circling back just to, to your younger years in Byron Center, did you, uh, were you always uh, the, the little brother who was venturing outside and late for dinner or were you more or less uh, right, right in there battling around with the, the, the girls, the sisters and, and hanging out with them all day? I, you know, I was quite a bit younger. So um, I was outside a lot. I yeah. liked being outside, but I was usually alone. Okay. Um, there was a couple neighborhood kids. We lived in the country, so there wasn't a ton of uh, a ton of that. But yeah, riding bikes. Um, I would throw the tennis ball against the barn wall for hours. Um, I, there was a great creek in the woods behind the house that I would build like G.I. Joe forts on, which was super fun. And I would hang out with my sisters a little bit, but not a ton. They were a lot older and um, kind of did their own thing. Yeah. No, I hear you. I was. I'm uh, a similar type scenario i had two older sisters and uh four years separate me from the other and um yeah i found myself outdoors a lot doing a lot of a lot of the same type of things you know um so i i I thought i'd ask but as far as your elementary years were concerned it sounds like you had a a fairly rural setting that you grew up in so it wasn't kick the can with a a group of neighbors on the cul-de-sac it was more or less venture out with gi joes and i don't know bb guns and yeah. And fishing poles or shooting frogs and uh, that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, I was always jealous of the kids that lived in the neighborhoods because they're always playing, you know, basketball in the driveway and uh, yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, I had a really good childhood for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of just finding something to do out of boredom. And then as I got a little older um, and started to play organized sports, you know, my parents would bring me to practices and that kind of thing. And so there was a little bit more. Uh, activity with friends and stuff like that, which was nice. In your high school years, uh, going from Byron Center into uh, more or less an urban setting at Catholic Central, what was that transition like? Uh, It was interesting. Um, My four older sisters all went to Byron Center Public High School. So I'd spent a lot of time, you know, going to their games and just being around that area. Yeah. And so going into downtown was unusual. We didn't, as a family, we didn't go downtown a lot. Uh, It felt like forever away to go downtown, even though it wasn't very far. Right. Um, but it was fun. And a lot of my friends live in different parts of the city because, uh, when you go to a private school, it's not a district. So people live all over the city. So I had friends that lived in Forest Hills and East Grand Rapids and Rockford places that we really, really never went. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was interesting. It was a way to kind of experience all of Grand Rapids, which I liked a lot. You mentioned sports. What, uh, what type of organized sports did you get involved in? Just the traditional stuff, football, basketball, and baseball. Nice. Um, you know, where I grew up and my dad's a little older, that those were the only sports that you played. Did that help mold or shape any passions for you or was that uh, was that just kind of part of the ride? Um, a little bit. You know, baseball has always been a real big passion for me. I love baseball. I love to watch baseball. Uh, going over to my grandparents' house, my grandpa was always watching the Tigers. Now I go over to my parents' house, my dad's always watching the Tigers. We always watched it when I was young. Um, listening to the game reminds me of summer. So I like to watch the Tigers. I try to encourage my kids to listen or watch whenever we can. 
so I definitely have a passion for baseball. Um, not necessarily the other sports per se, but for sure baseball. Well, the story that you're going to talk to us about today involves uh, bicycling. Tell us a little bit about uh, your introduction to cycling and, and what sparked that. My, my first experience with mountain biking was when I was a uh, senior in high school. My good friend's older brother was into mountain biking. And basically anything that my friend's older brother was into, we thought was cool. And he had a bike rack on top of the car, a bunch of stickers. It just was really cool. So we thought we would mountain bike too. And so I went a few times, really liked it. Uh, but then when I went away to college, I just never biked again. And I never really thought of it um, and just had no interest at, at that point. But then um, years later, I was with a friend. It was New Year's Eve. We were both talking about how we needed to lose weight. I thought a great idea would be if we got into mountain biking. Um, it allowed us to buy some really cool gear, which I love gear. Yeah. Uh, get a cool bike, maybe throw a rack on my car, get some stickers. I love stickers. Just seemed like it made sense. So we decided we were going to mountain bike. We both signed up for a race uh, in May. And um, so we just started doing it. And we started riding. We started racing. We had a great time. And um, it just really reintroduced me to cycling. Yeah. And uh, just the simplicity and the fun of it. What was your first mountain bike? My first mountain bike was a stump jumper. A uh, specialized stump jumper. Yeah. Nice. Uh, it was sweet. It had a yellow front rock shocks fork on it. I remember that bike. Yeah. It was a sweet bike. Yeah, it was. All steel frame. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Weighed about 40 pounds. It was, I'm sure, like, today, by today's standards, I would be embarrassed to ride that bike. But at the time, it was awesome. That was a cool, yeah. cool bike. So we were excited to do this new race in Traverse City. Our wives went with us. We made a weekend out of it. Nice. We signed up for beginner. Yeah. We got to the starting line. And uh, we both realized maybe we shouldn't have been in beginner, not because we were awesome, but just because this was definitely a race of the townsfolk. So just regular people. Yeah. So we ended up starting with sport instead. My buddy won. I almost got disqualified because we didn't officially change to sport, but he did great. Wow. Um, yeah. He was just a natural, natural athlete, natural cyclist. And then... Uh, I, you know, exceeded my goal, which was exciting. I don't remember. I think I was maybe 10th place or something like that. But um, we had an awesome time. It was super fun. Our wives were there cheering us on. We finished. We felt like real deal bike racers. And it just kind of took off from there. Um, I just, you know, I felt like I needed to do something healthy, mm -hmm. something active. Um, I didn't like to run. I'm not exactly a, a like a weights guy. I don't want to go to the gym and pump iron. Yeah. And so I wanted to just do something that got me outside, was cool, was fun, that I like to do. And biking just seemed like a natural fit. And yep. initially it was just mountain biking. Okay. Um, you know, only ride dirt. Um, but it kind of progressed from there out of necessity mostly because I liked to race mountain bikes. Yeah. Uh, but I couldn't get to the trail often enough to really get in shape. Mm -hmm. So then I started to road ride. And then road riding led to gravel riding, which led to cycle cross, which led to some triathlons, which led to some running races. So eventually I just started to do everything. It, so it was, it was the gateway drug. It was, yeah, okay. it was awesome. Hey, thanks everyone for listening to our podcast. Adventure Deficit's mission is to entertain, educate, and inspire you through these stories and the life lessons they hold. We can't wait to see you get out there in pursuit of your own adventures and combat the deficit. We need your help in achieving this, and there's several ways you can get involved. First, if you're listening to this, you probably already know we're on iTunes under Adventure Deficit, but be sure to click subscribe. This way, 
our new episodes will automatically appear in your download queue, and we'll know how many of you we're reaching. We'd love to see your feedback on there too, so feel free to post a note and let us know how we're doing. Our main website, www.adventuredeficit.com, which serves as a base camp for all of our content, is where we'll post notes from each episode, including timestamps from the highlights and direct links to any gear or information that you might want to revisit. There are gear reviews and short stories from other exciting adventures not featured on the podcast. Under support, you can either buy stuff or donate to the show. A special thanks to those of you who have already bought t-shirts or donated to us directly. This revenue enables us to continue producing content, so think about helping us in that way too, if you can. Finally, you can connect with us on social media. Our Facebook page is at The Adventure Deficit. Give us a follow, or we're on Instagram too, under Adventure Deficit. Thanks again, everyone, for listening, and enjoy the rest of the show. Cheers. Matt's actually got uh, a pretty cool adventure story to share with us regarding a 200-mile gravel grinder, which is is basically uh, primarily flat ground, but uh, you're humping it on a mountain bike the entire way, right, Matt? Yeah, gravel bike, mountain bike, uh, whatever your poison is. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's called the Dirty Kanza, and uh, Matt's getting ready to uh, help us combat the deficit. So let's go ahead and take our medicine. Matt, tell us about your adventure with the Dirty Kanza 200. So the Dirty Kanza 200 is, a, like you said, a 200-mile gravel road race in Flint Hills of Kansas, something I had never even uh, known existed. Um, I had a buddy who did it on a whim. He was kind of an endurance athlete, started to tell us about it. It sounded crazy. We thought he was crazy, and I didn't think any human could physically do that. And he kind of talked a bunch of people um, – on our team into doing it with him the following year. And as a joke, those guys signed me up for it. At that time, the furthest I'd ever ridden a bike was 30 miles. Um, And I could barely do that at that point. And so it was kind of a ha ha sign Matt up. Matt's going to do it. Matt has no intention of doing it. So eight guys went down and did it. They had a great time. All eight of them finished, um, which was really unique because the race has about, I think a 30% completion rate. Okay, so there's a handful of folks who aren't going to hit this finish line. Yeah. Um, and then one of the really uh, big accomplishments is beating the sun. So if you can beat the sunset, you get a special award. And there's usually only about 40 people who actually do that. And one of the guys on our team beat the sun. It was pretty crazy. So Whoa, so back up. You start in the dark? You start in the dark. You ride to the start line about 6 a.m. It's dark. Okay. Um, and you, fi- I mean, if you're fast, you finish in the daylight. If you're me, you finish in a really dark part of the night. Wow. Okay. So this is a dark to dark full day event. Yeah. Yeah. If you're covering 200 miles, you got to be. And it's uh, self-supported. So there's no aid stations. There's nobody on the course to help you. Uh, You have to bring your own support crew. You have to create your own uh, cut sheets to navigate. So you're on your own. It's definitely an adventure. Okay. Um, And then the third year, a bunch of guys were going down again. Uh, They signed me up as a joke again. Um, and this year I decided I was going to go, I was going to go, I was going to try it out, see what happened. It'd be fun. There was 20 of us going down there. It, at the very least, it'll be a fun weekend. So the first two years you didn't, you ended up just saying, Hey, no, thanks. That's yeah. funny. Okay. But year uh, three, you say game on. Yeah. I'll go down there. Uh, in my mind, it was like, it'll be a fun weekend. I'll hang out with the team. If I make it a hundred miles, that would be incredible. I've never gone a hundred miles. Uh, we'll just see what shakes loose. Cool. 
Um, the most I'd ever ridden in a year to this point was about a thousand miles. So okay. probably not your typical endurance athlete. Yep. This is a big, big piece of pie to be biting off. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we did some training leading up to it. Um, I did a, I did a race that was 57 miles. That was the furthest I'd ever gone. It was brutal. Um, I rolled into the finish line as they were tearing down the whole race. Um, there was a hot dog vendor that I passed on the road as I was coming into the finish line, leaving uh, a couple of police officers told me they were no longer going to be manning the street corners as I was coming through. <laughs> okay. So you just beat the sag wagon. Yeah, basically it was, that uh, was brutal. I beat one other person in that race. So I didn't take dead last, but I was real close. Um, okay. and at that point I was starting to really reconsider what I had gotten myself into. Cause you were already signed up for the dirty cans at this point. Yeah, I was going hotel room week off the whole thing. Okay. Um, so we get down there. It's great. I mean, the town of Emporia really embraces the event. Um, there's pop-up stores all over the place. The town loves it. That was a great atmosphere. Salsa's a big sponsor. They're really into adventure riding and bike packing and so forth. So okay. they had a nice setup down there. Um, and it was a good time. We went on a pre-ride, had a great pre-ride, had a lot of fun, was feeling pretty good about the weekend. Um, again, in my mind, I thought, you know, 100 miles, I'd be great with 100 miles. Um, so I had really kind of resorted to the fact that I wasn't going to complete this race. It sounds like, it almost sounds like you were just kind of down for, for kind of a participative, uh, type of, uh, experience. It wasn't, you weren't, you weren't looking to make any sort of, uh, any sort of historical, uh, finish, but yeah, it was my team. Um, you know, I had started the team and so I was down there kind of just supporting the team, being a part of the team. Cool, cool environment, seeing what it's all about <clears throat> was really kind of the approach that I'd taken. Um, but, you know, I had I had my nutrition ready to go. I had my bike ready to go. I had everything I thought that I needed to complete the race. Um, you know, and it was a lot of fun the morning of. And, you know, I kind of wasn't taking it too seriously. A couple of people on the team were taking it really seriously. I tried to create some levity and just kind of keep it calm and comfortable for everybody. We got to the start, we had the rollout and it was, it was on, it was game on. I couldn't, for a minute, I couldn't believe that I was actually even trying to do this. Um, but it was fun. The rollout was fast. I was riding with some people that I knew. Um, I made it into the first checkpoint in a little over three hours, which okay. I was surprised by. Okay. Um, there was some moments that it was tough, but it was definitely manageable. And, uh, it was some pretty crazy terrain, but having a mountain biking background, it didn't, it didn't throw me too much. Okay. Um, got to the first checkpoint. I was the last of our team into the checkpoint, but I wasn't that far behind. So I thought, well, that's cool. Um, went through my checks, headed out onto the next leg. Okay. So that first 50 mile chunk took you three hours. Yeah, about three and a half. Okay. Yeah. A little over three. Okay. And what was it? I mean, is it like, uh, is it like the whole shot on a, on a moto race coming out of the gate or what, describe that a little bit? So is it dust a, flying everywhere? It's definitely dust flying everywhere. It was real dry and hot. Uh, so it was hard to see. It was a cloud of dust, but you have a police escort out of town. So the rollout's managed. Okay. So everybody's pretty much riding about 20, 23 miles per hour. Okay. That's ripping. Yeah. You know, in a, in a big group. Um, it feels like you're going really fast. It's pretty fun. And yeah. then when we get to the gravel, that's when it starts to stretch out. That's when like the pros start to leg out. The people who want to hang with the pros try to try to follow them. And then the rest of us just kind of settle into our pace. And I was riding with some guys on the team that I really liked. And we were chatting a little bit as we were riding. And it was just a fun morning. The Flint Hills of Kansas are basically rolling 
pasture land. So there's not a lot of trees. Uh, it's relatively hilly. Um, the race overall had about 12,000 feet of elevation. Oh, wow. That's a lot more than I, I had anticipated. Most people think Kansas think flat. I do, um, yeah. So, and the hills are long and drawn out, but you can see forever. So one of the things that's kind of demoralizing is you can see how long a climb is going to be. It's right there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We're in mountain biking and there's trees, there's turns, you can't really tell. And then when you get to the top of a hill, you can see miles and miles and miles, um, which is really cool from a, just being outside standpoint. But then also, again, it's kind of demoralizing when you see all the hills that are coming up. Um, but it was really fun. We got to that first checkpoint, did good, got through it. Headed back out, was feeling pretty good. I got to about mile eighty. Uh-huh. Uh, the heat had really settled in. It was it was painfully hot. Uh, like was, what? Like temperature wise, what are we talking? You know, my Garmin said one hundred and two. Oh, I man. doubt that it was that hot it, in real life. Probably in the mid nineties, lower nineties, I would guess. Oh man, and that's and that's hot. I yeah. mean, you're out in the sun. There's no shade. Right. You're out in um, farm country. So I'm riding with a guy on the team. His name's Jan Lebo. He was he was like a an oasis that I found and like kind of got me through some tough tough moments in that second stage. We're riding up a road and we see two guys standing on the side of the road with a bike laying there, and we recognize the kits and they're Apex guys. Wondering like, oh, what's going on? We roll up onto him. One of the guys is pretty sick, suffering from some dehydration. Mm-hmm. The other guy's bike had broken, so he was waiting. Um, for our buddy who was sick to get picked up and then he was going to ride his bike the rest of the way. So kind of tried to make something good out of something bad. Right. Um, so we saw those guys, we left, we kept, kept moving on. Um, I got my first flat at about mile 82. Okay. Um, wasn't terrible. Got it fixed. The problem was it was so hot that your CO2 wouldn't last. So I made it probably five miles and the tire was flat again. Oh, wow. Um, so used my, I changed the tube, used my CO2, pumped it up, and then it went flat again about six more miles. So this last 20 miles or so of that second leg became just this war of attrition. And it was really hot. Got the tire fixed again, ran out of li- liquids. So I'm probably five miles from the checkpoint. Now I'm out of liquids, and now I'm hoping I'm out of CO2s. I'm just hoping to make it to the checkpoint. Okay. Um, what's at the checkpoint? Just a minivan okay. with a couple people that came down there with us and like a little Tupperware bin that I had packed stuff. In. Okay. So it's your checkpoint. It's our specific checkpoint that the race designates. So there's a bunch of cars in a field basically for all the other people. So if you didn't have your own crew, you just ride past that. You would, yeah. There wouldn't be anything else there for you. Um, so Jan was instrumental in helping me get to the to get to that checkpoint. So we got there. It was painfully hot. We had the gate up on the minivan just to get some shade. Yeah. We had towels that we had dunked in, like our ice coolers that we had on our heads. Yeah. Um, ate food, refilled up all of our water bottles and stuff like that. Yeah. Drank as much as we could. Yeah. The bummer for me at that point was it was crazy hot. I felt like I had nothing left, but I knew that I could, I could get back on the bike and maybe go 150 miles. I'd already gone 100, and I thought, man, I've already gone 100. I'm about seven and a half hours in. I can get 150. I mean, that would be awesome. I've never gone 150 miles. I could do that. Yeah. Wow. Okay, uh, so it's high. I mean, it's it's right at the hottest point of the day, it sounds like. If you're yeah. seven and a half hours in, it's, it's 2 o'clock. Yeah. Yeah, it was like 145, yeah. 2 o'clock when we were at that point. Um, 
Jan had decided his back hurt too bad to continue. So that was kind of a blow because I was really looking forward to him being, you know, somebody to talk to, have with you for that next segment. Yeah, you can draw energy from. Yeah. So Jan's day was done, which made the motivation to leave the checkpoint even harder. Um, But I decided to to go for it. So loaded up, headed out. uh, And then that next stretch was brutal. It's probably the hardest part of the race for me at that point. It was a straight road. That was hill after hill after hill, and you could just see it. You'd ride up and down, and you'd just see that it looked like it was never going to end. And there were people sitting alongside of the road, and you would just ask them, hey, do you need anything? And they're like, no, I'm just waiting for my ride. It was people who had called it a day. Everybody in front of you is is pulling off to the side, and it's becoming a cyclist boneyard. Yes, that's a very good summary of what's happening. Okay, I got you. And I'm at that point, I'm feeling like I'd made a mistake leaving the checkpoint. Um, it took me... About two hours, it felt like, and I, I could have a look at my my Garmin to go about 25 miles. And I thought, man, this is, I'm not even going to make the cutoff at this point. This is terrible. Um, so I was, I was, had gone to a very dark place at that point. And, you know, you're definitely starting to ride alone at this point. You can see riders ahead of you, behind you, but there's no pack anymore. Um, it's thinned out a lot. Uh, and then I got, I just got to this kind of plateau, this road that was kind of flat, um, the sun had started to go down a little bit. It cooled off a little bit and I just got a second wind and I felt I got my average speed back up. I was starting to move pretty fast. I was just felt really good all of a sudden. It was really weird. It was just this moment that overcame me where I was like, all of a sudden things aren't so bad. Like I I can do this. I rolled into the last checkpoint around eight o'clock and I thought it's eight o'clock. I have 50 miles to go. I can do 50 miles. Yeah, Yeah, I can, I can finish this thing. This is crazy. Uh, I knew the cutoff was 2 a.m. Okay. Um, I had, I think, roughly, you know, eight hours or six hours or something like that to get there. I thought I I can definitely do this. Um, The sun was starting to go down. It was beautiful. Temperature was cooling off. Uh, I left that checkpoint feeling like this is amazing. This is gorgeous. I'm going to enjoy myself. Uh, Looming in the back of my mind, though, was also a handful of people on our team who had called it a day already. Mm-hmm. Um, from dehydration and just things like that. And it was, it was a tough day. Yeah. Um, so headed back out, I did make a wrong turn, got a little bit lost. So that kind of threw me because I had my Garmin set to my cue sheets. And so everything was very specific. And now my cue sheets didn't match my Garmin. What's a cue sheet? Cue <clears throat> sheets were, uh, basically just a sheet of paper that we had printed out all of the turns. Okay. Um, and then laminated it and I had each section and then I had my Garmin just telling me like the mileage. So I knew at, in 2.5 miles I had to turn right on XYZ street and then in four miles I had to turn left on this street. And so okay. I would watch the mileage on my Garmin and I would use the cue sheet to navigate. So a cue sheet is basically, it's a physical copy of something that's represented by your, your Garmin as well, but it's a, it's in essence, it's kind of a it's kind of a system of checks and balances for the two devices. Yeah, okay. like a map cheat sheet, basically. Okay. Because okay. we couldn't, you couldn't preload the course into your Garmin. So you're, you're getting your second wind. The sun's coming down. Temperature's starting to cool off. You've kind of got, uh, you've kind of got it mapped out in your mind that the first fifty miles took you three and a half hours. You've got six hours to finish the the last fifty miles. You can do this thing. But yeah. You, but you take a wrong turn. I take a wrong turn. Oh man. Um, fortunately I am with a couple other people who made the same wrong turn and there was just somebody on the course who was letting us know that it was a wrong turn. 
uh, which was very cool, and managed to get back on course. It only took me about five miles off course. So it wasn't too bad. It wasn't one of those things where if I'd have been 20 miles off course, I, I may have called it a day. Could have been a game changer. Yeah. Um, so got back on track. Uh, at this point, it was starting to get pretty dark. Um, fired up my light. Was was kind of relevant, uh, relishing in the fact that like I was going to be riding in the dark. Like I've never really done this. This seems like kind of a neat thing. Isn't it funny how just a, a certain change of external variables or just a, the slightest tweak of circumstances can give you either hope or completely devastating like decay? Oh, yeah. It's crazy. So all of a sudden you're riding in the dark and now you've got another wave of energy because it's new. Yeah. It's this is cool. This is something that's unique and I liked it. Uh, yeah. the weirdest part about it, huge spiders, huge spiders were coming out onto the road. What kind of spiders do you know? I, I don't know if there's tarantulas in Kansas, but it, they looked like tarantulas. I mean, they were huge. Uh, and I remember just at one point I looked down and I rode over one and I thought that thing's wider than my tire by a long shot. And then I started to look for them and noticed a few of them and was kind of creeped out. One of the things that they don't tell you when you do this race, there's a big orientation beforehand and they tell you about all the things to watch out for in the foothills of Kansas, like rattlesnakes and things that can, you know, harm you. No kidding. Yeah. Okay. So kind of grossed out by the spiders, you know, being uh, raised in a house of five women, um, I just, it was inherent to not like spiders. Uh, so. so you, you didn't, uh, you didn't really have the energy to say eek, but you weren't feeling it. <laughs> yeah. At that point I was just praying I didn't have a flat or something where I had to get off the bike. Okay. Um, starting to get really dark at this point, you're pretty much alone. I could see a tail light way up ahead of me. I could see some headlights way behind me, but it's just pretty much me out there. And at this particular time of the summer, the moon was its smallest sliver. So it's really, really dark. Yeah. Um, and at that point I realized Strength in numbers. Okay. Somebody to help you navigate, somebody to have some extra headlights. You know, at this point, I saw some guys behind me and I decided I was just going to wait for those guys to catch up to me and see if they wanted to ride together. Yeah. Um, you know, throughout the course of the day, you eventually meet somebody you ride with. And I met some really great people and shared some interesting stories. And um, But at this point, <clears throat> I definitely needed to have somebody to ride with. So I waited. It was There were two surgeons from Boston, really nice guys. Ironically enough, they were trying to catch me because they had the same philosophy cool. of strength and numbers in the dark. So I ended up riding the last probably 35 miles with those two guys. Cool. Um, and they were good guys. We had some really nice conversations. Um, this was their first Dirty Kanza. Uh, but they were clearly endurance riders because they were telling me stories about some Fondos, 100-mile rides and stuff they had done. Um but it helped. We were going slower than I probably would have liked to have gone, but I didn't care at that point. Yeah. Because um, you know at this point, the chances of you finishing are are still improbable. There's there's a lot of things that could still go wrong in these last 50 miles or 30 miles. And at that point, I really wanted to finish. Now I was starting to think this would be amazing. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to make sure I could finish. So I wanted to take the steps that would get me to the end. Yeah. Manage that as best you can. Cause you've got the willpower now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, unfortunately, probably 15 miles from the finish, my light battery went dead. Oh no. Uh, in hindsight, probably shouldn't have turned it on as early as I did. And then also probably should have brought a second light. That would have made a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so now it was even more important than I was riding with these two guys. 
And then also in hindsight, pre-riding on Friday before the race should have pre-rode the end, not the beginning of the course, because the end of the course had the most amount of turns. Oh, interesting. And became the most complicated thing to navigate in the dark. Oh, man. So That's a hurdle. Yeah. If I were to go back, I would pre-ride the end, so I was familiar with the end. Um, so we struggled. We definitely got to a lot of roads where we questioned if we were supposed to turn, go straight. Um, it became more of a navigation thing than an endurance thing at that point because yeah. we were moving pretty slow. Yeah. Um, but we got close. The Probably the most uh, demoralizing part of that whole leg was there was a, I can't think of the name, like a spotlight that you shoot up into the sky like they used to do at the openings of movies and things like that. Mm-hmm. So Emporia had one of these lights and you could see that light the whole time and it just felt like you were riding away from Emporia. Oh, really? Um, and it just seemed like it was so close, but it was so far away. Yeah. But as we got closer to Emporia, you could start to see the city lights and things like that. You knew, you know, we knew we were, the end was near. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So at the very end, those two guys and I had a disagreement on the navigation. We decided to go our own separate ways. I had kind of gotten to the point where I just needed to finish the race. I knew we were only maybe a mile away. So I just went ahead and went for it. There was enough light from the city that I could see. Um, yeah. And your eyes had plenty of time to adjust by now. Yeah. Right? Although for a while, it's like you're looking through a like a cloudy tunnel oh, yeah. when you're staring at just a beam of light in right. the dark. And you get tunnel vision from yeah. doing 175 it's miles kind of, on a bike. Kind right? of crazy. I got to gotta believe you had some tunnel vision going. So I ended up, I you know, I wasn't 100% sure where I was at, but I knew I was in the town. I was going for it. So I got to the end. I saw the finish shoot. I saw my friend. So the guy who went originally... His wife was the first person that I saw. She saw me and had this look of amazement. She gave me a big hug. She thought I had died, which (laughs) she didn't literally think I had died, but because it had been so long, they were starting to get concerned about me. Uh, Then I saw my friend Bill, who also had just this look of elation. And then I rode down the finish chute, came through. You shake hands with the guy who puts the race on. They give you a pint glass. Um, And then I walked assisted to a camping chair where I was handed a Jimmy John's sub and a Coke, which was the best food and drink I'd ever had in my entire life. I bet. And then... How long did it take you to finish that? Oh, a minute maybe. (laughs) Um, And then everything just kind of like settled in. Then everything started to hurt. Yeah. I started to feel really weird. (laughs) Like the the effects of the day had started to settle in on me. But the, the adrenaline and the euphoria going through the finish line was... I mean, it was amazing. That's so cool. How, if awesome. you had to recreate that for us, I mean, try as best you can to describe what was going through your mind when you got, when you're, when you're 300 yards and closing from the finish line, you're going, I got it in the back. It's, it's done. I'm, I did 200 miles on a bike. It was, I mean, it's hard to explain, um, you have just this sense of, I cannot believe I just did this. This is amazing. This is such a huge accomplishment. Then also running through your mind at the same time, I'm thinking, well, I hope those other two guys are okay. Because yeah. I kind of felt bad about that. Your new buddies. I look at my finish time and the competitor is like, man, if only I would have gone a little faster here and there and stopped for less time at a checkpoint, I could have had a better time, which is ridiculous to even think that. But you can't help but have that run through your mind. Yeah. Um. What goes through your mind also is I'm never going to do this again. (laughs) I mean, this was crazy. Um, Also, I'm like, I got to find Bill. I got to find my phone. I got to call my wife. I got to let her know I'm done. Um, It was just this crazy range of emotions. Um, But it was, it was unbelievable. It was, I mean, 
it, to this day, it's one of the greatest accomplishments physically that I've ever done. No, that's really cool. So a pretty emotional ending. Yeah, very emotional. Um, very exciting. Uh, it really didn't all sink in, I don't think, until the next day. Uh, just because it was so late, you know, people were really tired. Basically, the race is finished. I think there was only another 45 people that finished after me. Okay. Uh, the two guys from Boston did finish about five minutes after I did, so they found their way through. Oh, nice. You got a beat on them. Yeah, I gave, I gave them a big hug when they came through, thanked them for the support. They did the same. Cool. Um, so that was pretty cool. Uh, and then, yeah, I went, went back to the hotel, took a shower, didn't realize I was that dirty. It took me a while to get cleaned up. Uh, a few people on the team stayed up to wait for me, which was really cool. Um, my roommate, who was the guy who I saw sitting on the side of the road earlier in the day, who had been sick, mm-hmm. he was in the hotel room, but he was trying to wait up for me. It was pretty funny. He'd fallen asleep sitting up with the TV remote in his hand and all the lights on <laughs> in the hotel room. Um, so I didn't wake him up, but I talked to him the next day. <laughs> did um, you at least take the remote out of his hand and put, I did, him, put I did. him into his bed? <laughs> I did. I tucked him in. Nice. Because um, I hadn't accomplished enough already that right. day. I needed another task. Yeah. Um, and then the next day, you know, just waking up, talking to everybody. Uh, only a few hours of sleep, but it didn't matter because I was just still so excited from the accomplishment. Yeah. Um, that was when, you know, it really sunk in that I had done it. It also is when it really sunk in that literally nobody that I went with thought I could do it. I shared with some people like, you know, I never thought I was going to actually do it. And then that's when they said, neither did we. And I thought, <laughs> oh, huh. Nobody thought I could do it. Yeah. Nobody thought I would do it. And it makes sense. I had never done anything even remotely close to that. I wasn't an endurance athlete. I wasn't an endurance cyclist. I had never ridden further than 57 miles. Well, I'd, or, you know, I'd never ridden 100 miles or anything like that. Yeah. Um, and there was no reason for somebody like me to finish this. I mean, the people that were going down there rode thousands of miles a year and did huge rides and trained. And um, I did very little of any of that. Mm. Um, so it felt really good. It almost enhanced kind of the success feeling of like, yeah, take that, everybody. Like, mm. Look at me. I did do it. I feel a huge life lesson uh, coming, and it sounds as though this experience changed your life um, for the better. If you could put into words what the the overarching lesson was that came from completing your first 200-mile gravel grinder, what would you have to say? You know, we're, surra- we're, we're in a world of... People always telling you, you can do anything you want, right? I mean, that's the first thing people say to you. You can do anything if you put your mind to it. You can accomplish anything you want. But I think secretly a lot of people think, I'll just tell you that, but you really can't. Um, We have all these limiting factors on us. And it didn't really fully sink in until that moment, that morning, where I realized like my whole life I had been living in a scenario where I thought I could kind of do anything, but then I really thought, I never really thought I could actually do it. Hmm. And I think it was a lack of confidence in a lot of ways. And I think by putting myself in this situation, um, even though I started out without the confidence to finish it, where I clearly thought I can't do this. But as I started to move through it, I started to realize I can do this. So I had this moment of I really can do things if I want or if I try hard enough. And a lot of it has to do with you know support, obviously. Um, but a lot of it has to do with confidence and a willingness to put yourself out there. And I think that's where we fall short a lot of the times 
is just not putting ourselves out there or in a situation to find out if we can do something or in a situation to succeed. Hard work translates into harder work, translates into more work, yeah. translates into huge accomplishments, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so by just injecting yourself into that first hundred miles, you, you got another hundred out of it. Yeah. And, and sitting here right now talking about it, it still seems crazy to me. Yeah. Um, it's 200 miles. Yeah. That's cool. Um, and yeah, just by putting myself in the situation was when I figured out if I could actually do it or not. Um, and, you know, that's given me the confidence to do a lot of other things now. And not just the confidence, but the knowledge to realize that I can, if I really want to try to do something or if I really want to accomplish something, I, I can do it. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of effort. But it's also going to take the courage to put yourself in the situation. Because if you're not in the situation, you're never going to do it. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that's where, you know, it's easy to take the easy road. I mean, there's a reason it's easy, right? Because it's easy, <laughs> which sounds silly, but that's just the truth. And it's easy to justify to yourself a, re a million reasons why you're not going to do something, why you shouldn't do something, why you can't do something. And we live in a society where people are, are oftentimes very critical of each other, which is unfortunate. But that adds, that contributes to it. You know, if I don't do this and I don't do well, are people going to make fun of me? Or are people going to give me a hard time? Mm -hmm. You know, that leads to that lack of confidence. And I think it's really important that you find something that you can do to prove to yourself that you can do it. And it doesn't matter what other people say. You know, it didn't matter to me what people were going to say to me if I didn't go 100 miles or if I didn't go 200 miles or however far I went. But when I did, their support and their encouragement and acknowledgement was amazing. And... um it was just a really cool experience. Man, that's really, that's cool. That's inspiring. I think that that speaks to a lot of people who have um, that initial hurdle to cover, which is, well, what if I don't finish? Or what if, what if my times suck? Or what if, you know, what if all the, the negative juju that I've got actually reigns true? Well, you'll never find out unless you, you get, you know, get going. And it's almost like you, inject yourself into the workflow and, and let that work itself out, mm -hmm. you know, at any one point. Yeah. That, that left-hand turn when you should have gone straight, when you had, you know, 30 miles left, that could have ruined you. Yeah. You know, hundred degree weather at two o'clock and your in your one support member, John says yeah. he yeah. bows out yeah. that could have ruined you. Yeah. But you would have never got there uh, unless there was the launch pad of hope that came in the form of, you know, a, a quick word of encouragement or so, some passerby who, who checked in on you and said, hey, you know, keep it, keep it up, Matt, you're doing great. What a, you just don't know what kind of good type of energy giving circumstances you're going to find along the way until you actually get yourself in, in there. Mm -hmm. right? You got to jump into the workflow. That's cool, man. Awesome, Matt. Well, thanks for sharing that story. I think uh, I think we can all take something from from the Dirty Kanza lesson, and certainly you, you've been uh, a pleasure to sit down with. I just want to talk a little bit about um, just kind of some of the questions that popped up throughout our, our conversation, and then uh, ask a couple of gear questions, and then we can get out of here. Sounds good. Cool, man. Um, so, talk to me a little bit. Get get us back to the minivan where you had your support team show up at a hundred miles and John took off. Uh, what was it that clicked 
that allowed you to head out on the path of isolation when you had so much going against you in the form of heat, distance, and uh, possibly, you know, dehydration and fatigue? Um, an irrational thought of if Jan's down at 100, I can go 125 maybe. Um, a thought of, you know, I have some gas left in the tank. I don't know if it's enough to get me 150 or 200, but it's enough to get me out of this checkpoint and keep going. Mm-hmm. And then also just the thought of, you know, if I have something left to give, I can't quit because I'm going to regret that forever. I at least have to leave it all out on the table. And that that feeling was really what kept me going a lot of times in a lot of dark places. If I had just enough energy to keep the pedals cranking a little bit further, I just needed to do it. I needed to go as far as I could go to yeah. see how far I could go. Yeah. Um, and as it turns out, I could go 200 and five, actually. I think that's that's really one of the big motivating factors was just to see how far I could get. Um but yeah, I never thought I was going to get the whole way, but it just worked out. It was awesome. Um, after you had uh, a, a brief encounter with um, the the surgeons from Boston, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Obviously, when you're 190 miles into a bike race, um, conflict is rather poignant. And uh, I, I think people are much less inclined to worry about um saying the right or wrong thing. I think you're just more or less free to speak your mind at that point. What type of conversation ensued when, uh, when you guys decided that you were in disagreement over directions? <laughs> I mean, it was, it was comical to a certain extent because they were clearly good friends and, and had ridden together a lot. And so they had been bickering a little bit back and forth really for the entire time we'd ridden together. Um, but they started to definitely bicker about the directions. And so, I was kind of on either one side or the other with those guys when it came to the navigating. And so we got, we just got to a point where um, they couldn't agree and I couldn't really agree and I needed to be done. I just needed to be done. And so we amicably decided like, Hey, I'm going to just try to go for it guys. And they're like, that sounds good. We'll see you at the finish. Um, was pretty much how we left it. Uh, It was definitely a good feeling to see those two come rolling in shortly after I did. Because uh, they they really were instrumental in getting me through that that night segment of the race. Was there any point where um, looking back on this whole trip, where you were able to utilize um, some of the gear that we have available to us in order to uh, propel you to those next five, ten, fifteen miles? Yeah, you know one of the one of the best things that I had was. Um, there's a company called showers pass and they make this water bottle that attaches to the back of your seat. Uh, almost looks like a, a gear bag that fits underneath the back of your seat and it mm. holds 40 ounces of fluid. And then it has a hose that runs along your top tube. And then it has like a spring loaded attachment. So you can just pull it up off of your handlebars, take a drink and then it'll snap back to the top tube. Oh, cool. Um, and that thing was, was the most critical piece of equipment I could have for the day. Because I had two 23-ounce water bottles in two cages. Um, okay. And then I had that. So for every segment of the race, every 50 miles, I had roughly 85, 86 ounces of, ounces of fluid. Nice. Um, and then that shower's pass bag also had a little gear pocket. So I had a couple tubes and some CO2 shoved in there. That's and then what I, you fixed your flat with. Yeah. And then I had a frame bag, too, that had my light... Um, 
uh, an extra battery for my Garmin. It had some more tools. It had some food in it. Um, because having those types of things with you out there is critical. What about uh, bike shorts, chamois? What, I mean, as far as keeping your butt comfortable, that's a long time in the saddle. Yeah, long time in the saddle. That's something that you need to train for properly, which I didn't do. Um, so I had a couple problems. I had a, had a checklist I was going to do at every checkpoint. One of those items was to, um, reinflate my tires, which would have prevented the flats I got. Another was to make sure I had enough chamois cream on and chamois cream is basically like a balm that you put on your chamois or your undercarriage. On all your friction, friction points. Yeah. Um, and I didn't reapply that. And so I did at the next two checkpoints, but it was too late. I'd already started to develop some saddle sores. Yeah, chafing. So that was uh, that was awkward. Um, yeah. So properly applying chamois cream uh, liberally, I think, is a really important yeah, thing man, to do on something no like this. Yeah, yeah. Uh... and I used um, a product made here in Grand Rapids by some local guys called Sonia. Oh, really? Yeah, which I thought was a great product. I really like those guys. Are cool guys. Okay. Um, I didn't realize we had had a manufacturer this close to home that was putting out butt cream. Yeah, they do. They do butt cream and they do Embro too, Embrocation, which is nice. Um, And then uh, our kits, so we ride uh, in cycling kits and they're made by Jackaroo. Um, And the cool thing about Jackaroo is they make custom stuff for us. So we made a specific Dirty Kansas kit for the team. So everybody that went down there had a new kit that was made specifically for that race. And we'd contacted the race promoters and they let us use the logo. Yeah. So the kit had like wheat tassels on it. It had the Dirty Kansas logo on it. It had a Michigan icon on it. Okay. Um, and then we had a couple sponsors that we put on there too. Uh, Velocity, which is a local company here in Grand Rapids. Yep. Um, Yields. Set us all up with a great set of gravel wheels. Cool. So we were They're the ones that do all the, the anodized aluminum, the cool colors. and Yeah, they do yeah. some fun colors. Yeah. Um, so that was great. Uh, we had a local bike shop that uh, kind of supported us when we were down there. So, um, yeah, it was great. I mean, from a gear standpoint, you can't really have too much gear on a 200-mile race. Yeah. Um, it's almost a bike pack race. Yeah, essentially. Level, right? um, but, yeah, the most important things definitely are chamois cream, hydration, food tools things well, that get you through what were you doing for food just goo goo packs and so i'm a real food person uh, yeah. i don't get into goo or any of that kind of stuff okay a so lot of people on the team did yeah um i had one water bottle full of gatorade just straight up old school fruit punch gatorade yeah buddy. um full of sodium <laughs> i had one water bottle full of scratch labs which is the nutrition drink that i like okay and then the showers pass was just full of water Regular H2O. Just regular old water. Cool. I took a salt stick every hour. It's a little tablet to try to keep me from dehydrating. And then... Um, Did you have any solid food at all? Yeah. So then I had... At the checkpoints, I would eat solid food. And I ordered a pizza the night before and just put slices in bags. And I had pizza at every checkpoint. It's fuel. Uh, I had pepperoni and olives on it <laughs> to give me a lot of salt. Yeah. And uh, to give me some carbs. And it was perfect. I had... Some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that I ate. Um, I had some oatmeal cream pies. Yeah. And then I had a bunch of uh, Cliff Mojo bars. Yeah. And uh, the crazy thing was is I ate a lot during the race, but I ate for probably three days after that like I had been starved forever. Yeah, I bet. Well, you're just trying to replenish what what you burned off. It's funny um, how we get caught up in in 
sports science and nutrition. And I think there's a lot of cool stuff out there mm-hmm. um, as far as, you know, getting the right, right uh, nutrition into our bodies during the right times. But at the, uh, the old school part of me loves the fact that you ate oatmeal, cream pies and pizza because that's simple carbs. There's sodium, like you said, in the olives. Mm-hmm. It's got, uh, you know, you've got some quick fuel there some sugar there that is going to allow you to kind of snap back and our bodies are pretty magnificent tools. They'll, Mm -hmm. they'll utilize what we put in there and, uh, food is food is food at some point. Right. I mean, yeah, you just need calories at that stage. And uh, yeah, I think that there's a ton of advancements in food and that's great, but ultimately all just kind of is based on the stuff that we've known all along and that we already have for the most part. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just give your body what it has always needed. Yeah. The hunters and gatherers ran for, you know, all day long and they didn't eat goo packets. Not no. there's anything wrong with goo, but <laughs> they, it just doesn't do it for me. If they would have stumbled upon one, they'd probably <laughs> discarded it. Yeah, exactly. What and just, uh, from a gut rot standpoint, you know, taking goo packet after goo packet for 19 hours, no. I don't know how anybody could do that and yeah. not have issues. Yeah, no, it's not a long-term solution. No. It's nice for a quick shot of energy. Yeah. Um, cool, man. So, a uh, couple more questions, and then I want to break into what what you've got going on with uh, with Team Apex. Um, if you were to speak with somebody who was thinking about taking on a, a race uh, similar to this, or wanted to do the Dirty Kansas, what would you um, what would you recommend they do in order to be better prepared and uh, and best suited to finish this thing? First thing I would say is first thing I say to anybody when they ask me about it is do it. Absolutely do the race. First and foremost, do the race. Have no reservations. Go there and do it. If I can do it, literally anybody can do it. The second thing that I always tell people is there's a ton of stuff you can read, a ton of advice you can get. The best advice I can give you is to try to filter that noise a little bit and do what's best for you. So if you're a real food person, do real food. If you're a alternative food person, do alternative food. Like Stick to what you know because that's going to be the most important thing to get you through the day. And then also... Have good tires on your bike. Um, have a good, comfortable bike. Um, bring extra lights. Bring extra batteries for your lights if they run off batteries. Bring a phone. Bring an extra battery for a phone or a second phone if you need to. Make sure you have survival things that you're going to need. You're mm-hmm. going to need to see in the dark. You're going to need to get a hold of somebody if you have trouble. Make sure you have enough hydration on you. So, however it is that you want to take water, if you want to wear an 80 ounce camelback or if you want to do something like the shower's pass bag or you want to add extra cages to your bike if it allows for that. Make sure you have tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of fluid and food with you. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, for me, riding a gravel bike was good. I think a front suspension would have been nice. Um, if I were to go back, I might ride a mountain bike with a front fork with gravel tires on it. Hmm. What um, were you on? I was on a cross bike or a gravel bike, essentially, and I was on 35 Ken to happy medium tires, which I think are a great tire setup for out there. Um, I rode about 45 to 50 pounds of pressure in the tires, which I think is helpful and not getting flats. There's a lot of people who try to ride low pressure because it's a softer ride, but get a lot more flats. Mm. Um, I was on an, an aluminum bike with an aluminum fork, which was not very forgiving. So rigid. Yeah. I think if you're on a, I think if you have a front suspension, that's great. If you're on a fully carbon uh, gravel bike, that's great too. Um, some of the newer gravel bikes, you can get 40 
uh, tires on, which is going to give you a little bit more cushion, which I think is nice. I don't mm-hmm. think you need it, but. Okay, cool. Yeah. Some, some good technical stuff that, uh, that comes from somebody who's done it. So appreciate that. Yeah. And talk to the guys who've done it eight or nine times or five times. They, yeah. They know probably better than me. Yeah. Just <laughs> plug in and the cycling community is, is tight knit, man. There, mm-hmm. there's a lot of good folks who are real quick to give, you know, honest feedback and, and quick advice. If it's not in the form of, yeah, you can do a 200 mile race, <laughs> wink, wink. Yeah. But, uh, no, they'll, they'll give you good practical tips, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's a ton of people out there that just want to see other people succeed and have fun. Cool, man. Talk to us a little bit about Team Apex Multisport. Matt founded uh, a multisport team called Team Apex, and uh, I had mentioned this in the intro a little bit, but uh, give us some of the details about that, Matt. So Team Apex was founded in, I think, 2009, kind of by accident. So I had mentioned earlier, a friend and I decided to start racing. We had a couple other friends that decided to ride and race with us. By the end of that first year, I decided I wanted to wear my own kit with my company's name on it. And those guys thought it would be fun if they did too. So we all did a race that fall called Iceman and we all wore Apex kits. Uh, There's, I think, seven of us that first year. And then after that, it was just friends of friends. People would see us at races. They wanted to be on our team. So a team was born. Um, And originally it was just a mountain biking team. And then as more people joined, uh, we had some triathletes join and we had some runners join and... Now we're about a hundred person team. Um, we do everything from triathlons to tough mutters to marathons to cyclocross, fat Extra, biking. Yeah, okay. everything. Anything you can think of that you can run a ride. Yeah. We pretty much do. Um, and we've also tried to expand into just benefiting the community, both from a philanthropy standpoint and then also just from a getting people outside, getting healthy standpoint. One of the most satisfying things about the team are people that join the team with the intention of losing weight, getting healthy, accomplishing something they didn't think they could accomplish. Um, that resonates with me. And so I get excited when people want to join the team for those reasons. Um, and then also we try to just make the community a better place. We do a lot of charitable events throughout the year. Uh, we try to support local races throughout the year. Um, we have one member of our team who puts on some really amazing events. Um, whether it be adventure races or bike races or things like that. Um, and so we just try to stay plugged in and have fun. And we're, in fact, we have our first golf outing coming up this fall because no why kidding. not, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's been a really fun experience and it's been really fun to see people's journeys. Yeah. That's really neat, man. There, there's a lot of synergy there with what we got going on over at Adventure Deficit too. That's cool. Yeah, I guess in some way we're trying to help people with their deficits. We didn't even realize it. Yeah, that's neat. So how do people uh, learn more about you or learn about joining up? Uh, You can check out Team Apex on uh, the web, uh, teamapexmultisport.com. You can also check us out on social media. uh, We're on Facebook and uh, Instagram and Twitter, all that good stuff. Um, We take new members usually uh, one, one time during the year, at the end of the year or the beginning of the year. Uh, we try to keep the team somewhat limited because it's like a family. And so we want to make sure that everybody that joins the team is um, adhering to kind of our same structure and values uh, and wants to you know make the community better, wants to be on a team, wants to help others achieve their goals and that sort of thing. Um, and we love to just be at events and we love to uh, help people reach their goals. That's so. really cool, man. Awesome. Um, 
Matt, really appreciate you taking some time to uh, to sit down with Adventure Deficit and, and give us your story. The Dirty Cans at 200 sounds like a heck of a heck of a gravel race, and uh, your experience with it was certainly enlightening. So thanks for giving us a lesson. Um, if you guys have any questions, Adventure Deficit community, you can find us on the web at www.adventuredeficit.com. I'll be posting um, show notes on there as well as any any timestamps and highlights from uh, today's sit down with Matt. Matt, thanks for your time and uh, we'll hope to see you out there. Thanks, man. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Absolutely.